Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? Today's episode is with Nick Freitas. He was a counterinsurgency, basically special forces operator, did two tours in Iraq. Um, he is now a state delegate in Virginia, basically a libertarian-leaning uh, GOP member. That's that's my read of it. We had an incredible conversation. Uh, we have a very in-detailed, in-depth conversation that's far-reaching, but at the very end, he tells me a story about what I would consider the, the, the most dangerous moment in combat that he had and the way he ties it into the fight for liberty uh, brought me to tears and he also teared up. So do not miss that part. That uh, I'm still a bit shaken by it. It was really, really, really powerful. Like powerful as hell. Um, so I want to appreciate, or I want to thank him for opening up and giving me the time, um, but also just opening up his heart and, uh, and allowing us to see the humanity that exists within soldiers, which I know libertarians oftentimes can be callous towards because we don't support the wars themselves. But I thought it was a very humanizing uh, tale and and one that we can all relate to and one that I hope we can all find inspiration in because I certainly did. Today's episode is brought to you by Crowd Health. Just as Nick details in this incredible episode, it's all about planning, right? You got to have the, the forward-looking game plan. If you're going into combat, well, in this situation, you can apply it to what matters tremendously to your own personal life, and that is your health care. You can see any doctor you want. There's no deductibles, exclusions, or co-pays. You only pay the first $500 of any healthcare event. The Crowd Health community takes care of the rest. No exclusive doctor networks, no huge premiums or high deductibles, and no surprises. Crowd Health works by putting the community back in community healthcare. You just pay that one low monthly total to fund your account. Your monthly subscription helps fund healthcare costs of the entire Crowd Health community. And unlike insurance, there are no doctor networks, so you can see any doctor you want. So, how do you take charge of your healthcare today? Well, you do so with CrowdHealth. Open enrollment is the only time you can hit the eject button on the broken system without penalty, so don't wait. And for a limited time, join for just $99 per month for your first six months when you use promo code LOCKDOWN at joincrowdhealth.com. That's joincrowdhealth.com, promo code LOCKDOWN. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. Let's get into the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell. Today, I will be joined by Nick Freitas. He has been uh, in counterinsurgency, also in American politics. I think he's got some libertarian leanings, but obviously was with the military experience, I think it'll be a fascinating conversation to see some maybe areas of disagreement and uh, some lessons that we could probably learn that libertarians and the anti-war folks oftentimes don't hear uh, simply because that's not our arena. We normally try and avoid the wars, but I think that there's always important lessons to be learned from people that have participated in them uh, to understand the fallout, the good, the bad, the indifferent. Um, without further ado, Nick, welcome in, thanks. sir. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, let, let's start there. I think we'll have uh, some really interesting insights because I, I feel like the anti-war community doesn't get to hear from veterans enough. Um, so it, first off, do you uh, where where do you find yourself in the the political arena today? Given your experiences, has it has it changed so, from when you entered? 
Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> I, I would imagine. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, so I'm a, I'm in the Virginia state legislature or the state legislature. So I'm, I'm a delegate there. It's a house of delegates mm. is our lower house in Virginia. So I'm, I'm an elected Republican, but I, I'm, uh, it's I, I've been accused several times by many of my colleagues of being an undercover libertarian uh, because you know I'm I'm apparently the only one that knows what ANCAP means and you know, right right like right. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I do. I I definitely have uh, from a philosophical standpoint a, a lot of uh, sympathy for uh, libertarian philosophy. And as I was growing up, I was like very much traditional Republican. And and interestingly enough, one of the things that um, one of the things that really pushed me over toward, you know, again, kind of that libertarian mindset was not just people I was reading, like whether it was, you know, Frederick Bastiat or uh, Manger or Mises or, you know, guys like that. Um, but it was also my experience in war. And it's not because I don't ever think war is necessary, right? I, I don't think the whole idea of the non-aggression principle is that as long as you're not aggressing against me, I'm not going to use force against you. Sure. And, and, I, and I think there's a lot of moral clarity to that position. Um, but when I, you know, after, so I, I went in the military right out of high school. I was infantry. I was 82nd Airborne. I was um, 25th Infantry Division. 9-11 happens. I volunteered for Army Special Forces, better known as Green Berets. And I served two tours in Iraq in 2006 and again in 2008. And uh, 2006, I was still very much in this like, well, of course we need the Patriot Act. How are we going to stop terrorism, right? <laughs> um, by the time 2008 rolled around, all of a sudden I was like, I have some real questions about what we're doing and why we're doing it and the processes that got us here and the information that got us here. And uh, I, I mean, I want to make a distinction here because there, there's things that, you know, the guy and it, a lot of times people look at that like, OK, yeah, you're going to make the, the, the typical, um, you know, hate, hate the policymakers, not necessarily the, the people in uniform. But really what it is, is in, in Iraq, we, we did have groups that were violently oppressing and trying to destroy, kill, rape, murder um, innocent people. And I still take a lot of pride over what, you know, our, our ODA was able to do, what we were able to do in order to protect them to the extent that we could. Sure. Um, but by the same token, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'll never forget. <laughs> this is in late 2008. We were almost done with our tour. And uh, I was supposed to write the Intel sit rep for our ODA, which is also known as Special Forces A team, kind of in like popular vernacular. And my, uh, my, my team leader comes up and is like, Nick, you got to put more on the sit rep for the, for the Intel portion. And I'm like, well, sir, we didn't, we didn't do anything. I mean, the last two weeks, we've been packing all of our stuff. We've been transitioning with the 10th Special Forces Group team that's coming in to replace the first Special Forces Group team. Yeah, there's just not a lot to put in there. He's like, just put some stuff in there. <laughs> well, he used to always read the sit rep before he sent it up to Special Operations Task Force North. So I put in, I said, hey, I got a question for all you, you know, smart guys up there at, uh, you know, the task force headquarters. Why are we the only military from a constitutional republic, from a free market economic system that goes overseas and takes down violent dictatorships only to set them up with parliamentary democracies and centrally planned economic systems? <laughs> so I yeah, put that in there. so great. Why are we spreading a different system? <laughs> right? So I, I, I put it in there and set it up. And the next thing I know, my, my team leader is like, Freitas, get over here. He goes, the, the, you know, the operations officer wants to talk to you. And he's like, you know, Sergeant Freitas, uh, do you think that was appropriate to put in a, you know, a, a sit rep like that? I said, sir, you know, I, I thought the captain was going to read it first, take it out. I said, but now that I got you here, I am interested in the answer. <laughs> yeah. 
Did he give you one? I would love uh, to hear. No, it. no, not really. Oh well, that's um, unfortunate. But, yeah, it it does maintain. But with that, with that started to that whole process. Um, I, I would say especially by two thousand eight, I was really. I'm like, okay, now you talk to me to like the the forty three year old version talking to the twenty five year old version. Of me would have an interesting conversation. But now I'm I'm very much adamant about you know Patriot Act is absolute you know travesty. We need to get rid of it. Um. You know, we should never be engaged in war I mean, unless Congress has at least had the common constitutional decency to vote on it. Yeah. Um, so They've again, stopped doing I, that entirely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. They've stopped doing that ever since the Korean War. But I mean, I, I, I go back to now where it's again, it's not that I don't think violence is ever necessary, but it should be defensive. Um, it should be used in in the process of, and, you know, again, that doesn't mean once you've gone to war, you can't engage in offensive operations. It's more of this idea that this is the last, you know, th this is the last case solution. And it's when you've gotten to a point where you you are now forced to defend yourself. That's when you engage in, that's when you engage in violence. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would say going to war along with, you know, reading some of the authors that I mentioned before. And also my faith has a lot to do with it as well. Mm -hmm. It really convinced me of, of a far more liberty-based approach to politics in general. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, there's actually, I, I don't think people realize it, but there are a ton of veterans that, that come to libertarianism because of their experience mm -hmm. uh, in warfare. And they ultimately realize that they have been, you know, either propagandized or lied to or whatever to end up in that situation. And they oftentimes come to uh, more of an anti-war position. Uh, so it's your, your story is not terribly unique in that regard, but it is uh, interesting because of the, um, you know, what's it called? uh insurrection uh oh yeah, yeah the counterinsurgency piece yeah yeah, ca yeah exactly counterinsurgency work that you were doing i would love to know um you know what what lessons did you take away from that because it seems from from my vantage point having not been there it seems that we were creating the insurgency because of our invasion and and ultimately many of these people believe that they're fighting for their own freedom or independence i would imagine um is that first off is that is my assumption correct that many of these people felt as if they were fighting for the, the side of right? I would imagine if you're um, going to risk your life, you would only do it for that reason, but I don't know. Well, it's, 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 oh God, it's one of those crappy yes and no um, issues. I mean, yeah, there were, there were some people. So you gotta, you gotta remember again, <laughs> the British drew the lines for Iraq. So you're talking about three large ethnic groups over there. You got the Kurds in the North, you've got uh, the Shia, which is the majority population, but the Sunni were really running the show. Right. And then the Shia were associated with Iran and that, that created its whole other problem because they were supporting Iranian you know, militias. And then the Sunni were, were largely backed by other organizations. And so you, you had this, this, this really weird environment where whether or not someone is shooting you today or working with you tomorrow could be based off of, of a whole host of you know sliding scale of, of right. what the interests happen to be that particular day and so you you did have situations in fact this was an interesting this is something i used too to protect the second amendment when the mil american military first went in there we were like disarming people i mean i wasn't a part of that wave but we were disarming people by the time i was there in 2006 we were rearming them right that that was one thing that we learned about counterinsurgency and what, what I liked about special forces uh, was you're a 12-man ODA and you can be responsible up to a 500-person indigenous battalion. Hmm. So when, when you're counterinsurgency, you're working with the government in order to beat the insurgency. When you're unconventional warfare, which is the other side of what we do in SF, you're working with the insurgents to overthrow the government. Hmm. So the first Green Berets that went in Afghanistan were working with the Northern Alliance to overthrow the Taliban. 
And and I, I will say this much, insofar as there are times when we need to go to war, especially when we're talking about a foreign war, when we're going overseas somewhere, in, insofar as that can be you know appropriate or morally justifiable, depending on the circumstances, that model is the way to do it. it mm. It's it's not going over there in the United States military coming in and said, hey, thank you, sit over there, we got this now. Right. right. It's saying, oh, okay, who are the people that are, are most closely aligned with you know whatever you know, a, a semblance of, you know, free markets or, or um, you know, individual rights or civil liberties. Like what, what, what group there represents the closest to that that we can work with to overthrow what might be a, a very brutal and dictatorial regime or maybe a terrorist-oriented regime? And how do we work by, through, and with them so that they're actually creating organic solutions that work within their culture, not sure. taking a back seat to whatever, you know, the general has decided from the U.S. military? Right. And because so, if and, you if you expect them to succeed in ruling once you've installed them in power, they have to be that type. Oh, it, it drove me nuts when when President Bush was like, got, you know, I mean, we're, we're in Iraq on, and we, we've taken on the Iraqi military easily because the conventional militaries don't stand up to us well. Right. The insurgency is where the asymmetric warfare comes into battle. And it's a, a whole different dynamic. But we're, we're, we're now trudging through this insurgency. And Bush is asking, well, where's the Iraqi Thomas Jefferson? And I wanted to be like, dumbass, the French at least knew the answer to that question before they came over to the United States and started helping, right? They weren't they, asking. They didn't wait three years. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't saying, well, we don't have one. I guess we'll create one. Like, that, right. that doesn't work. That doesn't make any sense. So I, I think that in, in um, you know, when it comes to, like, fighting in Iraq, what, what I saw was a couple of different groups. So you had Shia areas that they had been brutalized by the Sunni regime. They were very close in getting a lot of their resources and financing from the Iranian regime, um, and, and they're, they're trying to protect their own. Um, you had Sunni militias that a lot of them aligned with al-Qaeda or ISIS and, and other groups like that. You had the Kurds that were kind of doing their own thing, and the Kurds were actually the quickest to kind of pick up and say, we got this. We, we will run our own show. And, and it, it, what was, it was fascinating watching this between 2006 and 2008 where there was areas in the green zone in Baghdad with, with arguably the, the heaviest um, government and U.S. military forces present, international forces present, where you still had to walk around wearing body armor, where there were places up in the Kurdish area where you could walk down the street without any of that. Hmm. Um, and, and again, I, I – chalk that up to the fact that they had objectives, they knew how to do it, they were operating within their culture and their geographical understanding, and, and you you let them figure out what's going to work for their area. Mm -hmm. um, but this, the sad part to me was when we had disarmed a lot of these groups and before we had gone back out and rearmed them and let them set up local militias, right, this is the part that never gets told about with the surge. It's always, oh, we sent over a bunch of more divisions and that, that solved it. What I think had a far greater impact in the long run was we went into these, these small villages that were isolated, that were easily exploited by terrorist groups. And we said, hey, here, here's a bunch of AK-47s. We're going to help you be able to defend yourself. Because prior to that, Al-Qaeda comes in and tells some kid, hey, you're going to put an IED on the side of the road, and we're going to give you 100 bucks to do that, which could be like a month's worth of pay, right? Or you can refuse us, and we'll kill your family. What do you want to do? Yeah, right? easy so choice. Yeah, the kid picks up an ID, puts it on the roadside. Then what do we do? Oh, we got a drone or we got a helicopter or something. What do we see? We see a guy putting a you know ID on the side of the road, zap him. And you're looking at this going, what have we made better in this situation? 
right? That dude, I, I get it. You were trying to protect against an IED on the side of the road, but you ended up killing someone whose family and whole tribe is now pissed at you as a result. Exactly. Al-Qaeda comes right back in and they say, see, we told you, you know, the great <laughs> right. Satan is going to. So once we started creating capacity for them to be able to, to defend themselves, that had a much greater effect. And we, we would have these naysayers come in and be like, well, you know, this is garbage. All you did was, you know, you, you gave these, you know, villagers a bunch of guns and they're still letting Al-Qaeda get through their checkpoints. And we used to come back and say, yeah, but now Al-Qaeda has to pay off 10 checkpoints, whereas before they didn't have to pay off any of them. Right. And the more yeah, resources. Well, I, yeah. And now, and now that small village isn't planning IEDs, uh, you know, that you have to worry yeah. about. Yeah. So no. it, that that oh, was kind of, that was one of those interesting dynamics that doesn't get talked about a lot, but um, you 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 end up <laughs> you end up learning very quickly that this this grandiose idea that that you're going to go in and and drastically change a, a centuries old culture um, to to kind of paint it in your own image is incredibly arrogant. Yes. Um. And and really doesn't make a lot of sense. That that's not to say that I don't have. I don't have very strong beliefs about, you know, you know, individual liberty and free markets. I do. I also understand that to some degree, people have to believe in these things and, and genuinely adopt them for themselves in order to effectively implement them over generations. Otherwise, all they're doing is waiting for one authority figure to move out, and then the next one comes in, and it's all right. about adapting within changing authority figures. No, I think that's beautifully said, and I think that's why I'm so concerned about the condition of America because it, it seems as if our culture no longer appreciates capitalism and peace, prosperity, freedom, liberty, you know, yeah. all of these things. But uh, before we, uh, you know, transition more domestically, I I'd like to uh, understand why it is that it, it seems to me that we have begun arming and supporting not the Democrat or democratic systems in many of these countries, um, in fact, it seems to me that, you know, while we used to have this kind of anti-communist bent when it came to who we would d dictate would be the leader of these uh, enemy nations, now we're not so interested in that. In fact, oftentimes we support the the more socialist-leaning uh, politicians in these nations. Uh, Brazil's a good example. Yeah. Um, so is this a, is this a uh, philosophical shift, a tactical one? Do you have any insights into that? I think it's a philosophical one. I, I think I think a long time ago, um, I think a long time ago, Americans, especially those on on, let's say let's let's do a broad category of people that had a genuine appreciation for individual liberty, free markets, things like that. I, I think there was this idea that, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that we had won the larger philosophical argument, and mm -hmm. now we were, yeah, we were still going to have debates on what the marginal tax rate should be or if there should be one at all, but. It was never going to be the kind of the drastic collectivist, you know, mm -hmm. arguments that we had seen at the height of the Cold War. And, and what we found was, is that the opposite was true, is that now all of a sudden we had all these institutions, especially within popular culture and within academia, that were raising an, another generation with a, a completely revisionist view of the, the entire argument that was going on between um, – you know, I don't even like to call it progressivism, more of that, that Marxist centralized state focused approach versus a liberty based approach. Mm -hmm. And what you saw was these, these different branches that took off from critical, you know, critical theory was heavily rooted in, in Marxist theory. Um, you saw an economic approach, you saw a racial approach, you now see a, you know, a gender approach, you see all these things, but all of it goes back to the same thing. And it's the idea that we need more state control and we need more, you know, state imposed, um, 
you know, mechanisms for basically controlling society. Right. And so when, when you have the people that are going to all the institutions that then find themselves in the State Department or in Congress or in think tanks that are, are crafting the way that we think about these things, I don't think we should be surprised when all of a sudden we're watching countries in South America that we thought, you know, whether it was Colombia, Brazil, uh, Chile is, is the one that really concerns me at this point that we thought had, had kind of bought in or, or learned their lesson, right? Like Brazil with Lula, I mean, you thought, oh my gosh, this guy, <laughs> this guy's a crook, right? Mm -hmm. not, not only did he make horrible economic decisions, but he was, he was legitimately corrupt and nope, he's back in office. And, um, you know, Venezuela is obviously, you know, a mess, but I, I think what you're seeing more and more, and you see this with the WEF, you see this with a lot of elites within American politics, they, they genuinely believe, as, as Thomas Sowell likes to point out, that they have this vision of the anointed. Um, that no, 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 they're not totalitarians. They're not authoritarians. They're just, they're just, they know what's best. Yeah. And, and so, of course, they're going to need these various mechanisms to be able to maintain control over the economy, over healthcare, over education. But it's all for your benefit. Yes. And and so I, I think it becomes the, the benevolent very, technocrats. Yes, I, I think it becomes very or or what C.S. Lewis used to refer to as the um, the moral busybodies. Right. Um. You know they, they they're allowed to torment us without end because they do so with the approval of their own conscience. And, mm -hmm. and I think I think that's far more explanatory of what we're seeing right now with with what the U.S. is projecting um, with regimes overseas than you know anything else. I I couldn't agree more. I just wanted to get my uh, assumptions uh, verified essentially by someone who you know has served and I, I it's a it's a really disturbing trend though because what it what it tells me is that the whoever runs the world I, I'm not so convinced that it's the American government at this point I think it's more you know supranational uh, organizations people that don't really have any uh, state that they claim per se but rather an ideology that they claim and and uh, are, are devout in. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that that trend is very disturbing because, you know, even though I wasn't a fan of the U.S. government being the dictator of the world or the, uh, you know, the quote unquote leader of the free world, um, I still think that that was highly preferential to having, you know, people that have deeply Marxist leanings uh, being the controllers of the world. And I think that's what we're up against. I think that's really what the lockdowns amount to. I think that's what um, I mean everything over the past decade really has has demonstrated to me that we are facing a a marxist cultural revolution as well as uh, what amounts to basically a fascistic economic model but on a global scale is yeah. there where what do you no, think I, I think you're spot on on the you know it was it was interesting i um you know when i talked to my constituents a lot of them be like oh the, you know the, they're marxist they're marxist they're marxist and i said you know some of them are like you could probably make an argument that bernie sanders uh, is that way. I said, but honestly, if, if you want to take a close look at their economic policies, it's far more fascist than it is socialist, sure. right? They're not arguing for the complete, you know, abolition of the, you know, private ownership of the means of production. They're actually going with a model that looks a lot more like Italy or even Germany in the 1930s, where it's, we're going to nationalize certain industries. So like your healthcare, your education, like these things that you are heavily dependent upon for your, you know, well-being and, and your education. But when it comes to managing certain things, yeah, we'll, we'll allow you to do it within these government-approved cartels, right? It's, exactly. And and I mean, just so, look at the pressure against Twitter versus Apple, the disparate treatment yeah. that they're receiving. It's so obvious. Like, if you do the bidding of the government, we'll we'll classify you as a private business, and if you don't, well, then we'll we'll threaten to nationalize you. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Well, I, I was at University of Virginia the other day, and I, I I gave a talk on left the rise of left wing authoritarianism. 
And one of the things I did, I said, look, I know these terms can be kind of sort of nebulous and there's different political traditions in Europe versus the United States. I said, but I'm going to read off 10, 10 um, quotes for you. And the, these quotes all come from different like party platforms and, and like local party platform and things like that. I'm going to read these off. I just want you as the audience democratically to tell me left wing, right wing. So I, I read them all off. Right. And we, yeah, this one's obviously right wing. This one's left wing and, and the whole deal. And, and I wasn't trying to be, you know, crazy or nothing. It was just, I, I pulled the language out. Here it is. And I said, okay, you know, for those of you that think fascism is a right wing ideology, I said, I, I want you to know that you classified, you know, the, these two statements came from the Nazi party platform. These two statements came from the Italian um, fascist manifesto. I said, so the, the thing I need you to understand is that it doesn't mean that if you're on the left, you're automatically a fascist or a communist. It doesn't mean that. But isn't it fascinating that you would have never even imagined that that sort of those sort of policy positions would show up in a fascist track? Mm. And because really what this comes down to is a question of how do you solve problems? Do you solve problems through voluntary cooperation among free individuals? Or do you solve problems through the threat of coercion, force, violence, centralization? How do you do it? Mm -hmm. And what you find is a lot of similarities between these authoritarian approaches uh, to society. Right. And so I, I think, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. The other thing that I think is, is going on right now, which is kind of interesting, I, I love world history. And if you, if you go back and you look at the, the various kingdoms in Europe, um, all, all through the fall of the Roman Empire, um, you know, going, going forward, what you end up finding out is that there's, there's really like seven or eight families kind of running the show. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, you know, Catherine the Great of Russia, except she was German. Right? <laughs> right. And, and and the Habsburgs of Spain, who were actually Austrian, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was it was certain, and I don't say this as a conspiratorial thing. Just go look at it. There was certain families that had influence. Right. They intermarried in order to kind of protect that power structure that was going on. And sometimes they were ruling Spain, and sometimes they were ruling parts of Italy, and sometimes they were ruling parts, and sometimes they were doing other things. And and it almost kind of feels like now with with some of these. Um, some of these high-profile individuals, especially they just go look at a, a World Economic Forum meeting, and, and you can kind of figure out who their version of the aristocracy is. Right. And, and regardless of what country they happen to be representing right now, today, that's really not what's interesting them. They have a certain worldview and philosophy, mm -hmm. and they want to work with other people that share that and, and hold positions of power and influence in other places. Why the WEF loves to put people in positions of influence in different governments. Because that's really what this is about. They, they, have a certain, they have a certain order that they prefer, and they're going to put themselves in the position to be able to influence that order, whether it's in the private sector or in the government sector. Right. And, a, world, a world order, if you will. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You say <laughs> stuff like that, and people are like, oh, that's conspiratorial. No, no, no. They, they, they say, say it. it. They say it. Like they, yeah, they Bill say Clinton it every was day, on the panel, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's exhausting. Um, oh. Well, I, I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about you know, what your opinion is as to how we defeat this. I mean, I think that obviously education is key as a anti-war person. I am, I am very hesitant to take any sort of, uh, you know, offensive stances when it comes to violence. I, I, I very much want to avoid that. Um, but I think a lot of people are, are asking themselves, you know, at like the Solzhenitsyn lines of like, you, you just, you don't really know until it's too late. And then once it is, it's too late. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I, I struggle with this regularly that I, I don't know where that line is. And I don't think anyone ultimately does, but I'm just curious if you have an opinion as to like, is there, is there a breaking point in this country where 
the people that still do value liberty and oppose collectivization uh, collectivize themselves and say no more. Yeah, I, I think um, so. Here, here's kind of my take on that, because, again, it's uh, like my goal is to my goal is to try to affect change. And, and I don't again. Violence should always be defensive and always be a last resort, right? You right. should be able to exhaust everything else before you have to resort to something like that. So I'm always very careful to let people know. That's what I mean when I say, when I say fight hard for what you believe, and I'm not saying, you know, go hurt somebody. Um, so obviously I do think, I do think we, we have to be involved in the, in the political process. And the other thing that we need to do is we need to get a little bit deeper than the people that might just fall within the right political party. What, what we need are people that genuinely understand, like at a, at a philosophical level. Anybody can take the little litmus test, look at their district and understand, okay, this is what I got to say to get elected. What we really need is for people to understand at a philosophical level, what are you trying to achieve, right? And, and for me, it's always, how do I get society to as much of a voluntaristic society as possible? How do I achieve that? Now, I, I will tell you right now, the, the hill I will die on, and, and it doesn't even get me to everywhere, it doesn't even get me to everything I want, right? But if I could just get education reform, I, I was just going to say that. That's yeah. <laughs> if I, I think just I, I mean, education reform. As, as fast as we're defeating the the current Marxists, we're churning out them by the tens of millions. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah, yeah. So I and and that and here's the here's the great part about this is because our position is not oh we don't like the way that the government school system is is educating children. We think it's potentially toxic and and very it's it's toxic at at worst and it's ineffective ineffective at best. Now we're not saying therefore you should put us in charge, right? Get rid of CRT and put in get rid of the sixteen nineteen project and put in the seventeen seventy six project. We're not saying that. We're saying free it up to to the extent possible. Now, some people will say, nope, I, I will accept no compromise. I just want government completely out of education. Good luck with that. Good right. luck convincing people that have grown up for generations now in a government-run education system that they're simply going to exit stage left and, and you're never going to see it again. Mm -hmm. But what if, we could, what if we could at least get it to the point where it's like, okay, when the government, like I, I, I'm very skeptical of welfare programs. But when the government wanted to help hungry people, they didn't open up 10,000 government grocery stores and make you shop at one based off of your address. They gave you a voucher for food and let you go into the marketplace. Sure. Okay, if, if all I could get was to say, you know what? Government's still going to help finance education, but there's really no reason for it to administer education. And in fact, there's a lot of there's a lot of concerns about the government having that sort of monopolistic control over it. So instead, we're going to allow dollars to follow students, and, and we're going to open up to more of a, a you know a robust, creative, competitive market for education. You hear that, you drug addicts out there? Get that smack in you? Why would you need smack when you got THC hemp spot? Why would you need it? Come on, man. You ain't going to make it to work if you're all high off that yayo. But if you're high off that Delta 8, you can still you can still maintain your job, maintain your employment. Plus, you can help out a libertarian entrepreneur. It's a winning situation. It's a winning combination. They have a wide range of products available. Smokables, edibles, gummies, candy bars, honey sticks, chewing gum, concentrates, hash, shatter. Still don't know what that means. Shots off gel capsules and a variety of vape products. I'm going to Google shatter after this ad read. I promise you. Sign up for their newsletter and get access to regular discounts and entertaining content. Free shipping on orders over 100 bucks. The name is THC Hemp Spot. Coupon code CLINT will get you 15% off. Exclusive for my audience. Again, that is THCHempspot.com. If you are getting Delta 8 from anywhere else, cut it the fuck out. 
support a libertarian podcast and a libertarian entrepreneur and get your Delta 8 or whatever other products over at thchempspot.com, promo code CLINT. I think if we could get that, we, we would have a situation where at least at that point, parents now have options. And I think the more options that are out there, the more people are going to realize that how bad the current system currently is. Right now, they just don't have anything to compare it to. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, I, yeah. I was just going to say, I, I think that a, a lot of people, particularly because of the lockdowns, the mask mandates for children and then the vaccine mandates as well, um, those that really value individual liberty have begun homeschooling in mass. Yeah. And I think that's obviously a tremendously uh, hopeful statistic. But at the same time, that is not practical for the vast majority of people. Um, if if not for philosophical, but economic reasons, they just simply can't afford to do so that both both parents are working. It's like, what are you yeah. going to do? Um, and I think obviously you have to go back to the central bank and inflation as to why both parents have to work, but that's a much yeah. more complicated issue. Uh, so even though I would like to strike the root, I realize that in the interim, we have to have some band-aids here. And uh, I think that the voucher system would be a good idea. I've heard that um, you know, James Lindsay, for whatever reason, is opposed to the voucher system. Are, are you familiar with James Lindsay's work at all? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I actually <laughs> a real admirer on a lot of the work that he's done with like ESG um, stuff. Yeah, some of the other things too. he did on Twitter, I thought was just awesome. But yeah, DEI, um, SEL, yeah. that guy's that guy's enlightened me to a lot. Yeah. No, I, I and I get it. Like there, there's another argument that says that if you will if you if you transfer the, what right now what is happening is that there is a group within the, the private school sector, within the homeschool sector, that is completely separate from the government system. But if you create a voucher system, there's going to be such an enticement to take that government money that essentially what you're going to do is actually expand government control into all these other areas. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I, I understand the concern. My question is, okay, what's your alternative? Because if your alternative is just more homeschooling or more private schools, you're not addressing the economic concern that you brought up, which right. is, we, we have a situation right now, and, and I completely agree. I think a lot of it has to do with monetary policy um, and, uh, as well as other government intervention into stuff with the family and the, and the economy. But Sure. We, very, it's very the, complex. Yeah. The bottom line is, is that you have a lot of people that simply cannot afford to do that. And so unless you're willing to step up and, and be able to stand in that economic gap, then I don't see an alternative. And I, I think the legislation can be written in such a way to where we can we can always provide that off ramp. Like I, I have school choice legislation going forward next year. One of the things I'm adamant about is that people always have the ability, they have the right to be able to completely separate themselves from the government school system. And one of the things I'd like to see in that realm has to do with like the tax the tax break or the tax credit or or whatever. But that's the idea that. If you want funds that are allocated for education to go directly to your child, well, then, okay, that's part of an ESA system or education savings account system. If you say, forget it, like my wife and I, we homeschool. If we want to stay in the system where it's like, nope, I don't want any, I don't want you anywhere near me or my kids. I still want the freedom to be able to choose that option. And then I can get necessary tax breaks or things like that to be able to cover some of the costs, but I'm not taking any additional funds that were essentially confiscated from somebody else and now being given to me. So I can, I still have the ability to take that position. Um, but, it, but in the interim, I, I don't see how we get closer to um, a, a better situation for education without some sort of dollars following students model. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair assessment and, and one I, I lean towards as well. Um, you know, the the real debate that I've, I've had internally over the past few years is like, as an individualist, as someone who doesn't believe in collectivization, um, it's quite evident that we've been getting our teeth kicked in 
you know, by the people that believe in state power and collectivization. And I think that that puts libertarians in a very awkward position where we don't want to wield the power of the state, but we are basically out of self-defense forced to do so. Yeah. And, um, Obviously, there's a huge debate because, as you're well aware, you know, I am an anarcho-capitalist and mm. uh, anarchist thought and theory is very prevalent within the libertarian sphere. But I, I do think that it's to our detriment to ignore the political process, um, to ignore the ramifications of having a civilization that is predicated on public schooling, uh, where these kids are indoctrinated. They don't know any better, but they're, you know, this is what they're taught for 20 plus years, many of them. And, and I just don't know how we end up in a freer world on that trajectory if we ignore the political process. And I, I, I basically what I'm saying is I appreciate your efforts to get involved. Do you think that the GOP is, is a pathway that can actually deliver on what is needed? I mean, obviously you're involved in it, so yeah. I, I have to assume you believe so. <laughs> yeah. But Well, it, it, look, political parties are tools. Um, sure. The moment you start to make the political part of the objective, you're, you're in trouble. And unfortunately, a lot of people end up doing that. I look at it as a mechanism. Mm -hmm. And to the extent, so like, let's say what we just talked about. I want greater educational freedom. Okay. Can I, can I get that as an elected libertarian? No, because there aren't any. All right. Can <laughs> right. I get it as an elected Democrat? No, because they oppose it. Right. Can I get it as an elected Republican? Yeah, I can under certain conditions and situations. So like Arizona, West Virginia, New Hampshire, right? Like all of them passed some pretty good um, education, freedom um, legislation. Can I get something like constitutional carry with the Democrats? No. Can I get it with Republicans? Yep. Yeah. So it, now, not in all cases, obviously, right? I, right? I live in Virginia. I've carried constitutional carry, you know, for like gosh, three or four years. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's, again... <sighs> Going back to kind of my military experience, one of the biggest things that they impressed upon you in SF because you were you were outnumbered. That was always the thing to remember is that when when special forces was going to an area where almost always outnumbered, whether it was by the people that we were working with and almost certainly by the people that you were working against. And so they they hammered home this idea: understand your operational environment, understand your operational environment, understand your operational environment. Right there, there's what you wish it would be, there's what you might be trying to create it to be, but there's what it is right now. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a healthy appreciation for that, you're never going to get it to where it needs to be. And, and unfortunately, my, my problem with a lot of people that I agree with philosophically is that they have, this, they have this mindset that, well, you can't change the system by working within it. You have to work outside of it. I'm like, okay, well, keep doing that. Yeah. Like, let's, how's that working out for you? Good luck. <laughs> yeah. The, the most successful people. I mean, I would argue that the reason why the liberty movement has even gotten to the place it is right now is because of the people that were working inside the system. Yeah. Right, it's the Ron Pauls, it's the Rand Pauls, it's the Thomas Masseys. Right, that's not to say that there weren't other a lot of other great thinkers like Murray Rothbard or you know sure. et cetera. But the the people that were able to gather a, a movement around and and literally stand up there in the halls of power and say, "I don't want this power. My job is you know kind of the the funny Ron Swanson, right? Like I will go as far into the belly of the beast as possible <laughs> right. to do this." And, and, and I get it. A lot of libertarians are skeptical of the ability of someone to be able to stay true to that mission yep. when they're doing it. What I, what I would argue is, is that when you do find somebody that for years has consistently demonstrated that they, they are willing to do it, that's, that's your Ron Paul, your Rand Paul, your Thomas Massey. Um, when you have people that have demonstrated they're willing to do that, you have to give them the operational freedom to, to be able to keep pushing forward. And, and every once in a while when they do something, like I remember Thomas Massey took so much heat because he voted for the farm bill one year. 
Mm. Well, the only reason he voted for it was because he got this revolutionary change with respect to things like industrial hemp, mm-hmm. right? That we mm-hmm. never would have gotten without Thomas Massey being where he was at, right? We we were like I'm another big thing I'm passionate about is food freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have a, a he's team, great on that. Oh, he's he's wonderful on it. Um, so it's like allow us allow us some of that operation only if you trust us, of right? Course. And don't automatically assume. It, I was joking with somebody, they were talking about, you know, politicians kind of like turning on their own. And I said, well, yeah, there's a, there's kind of a hierarchy for that. He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, Democrats turn on their own once they get power. Republicans turn on their own um, once they, or before they get power. And libertarians turn on their own because screw you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said, so it, it's, it, again, there, there has, as, as much as we all believe in, in individualism um, on a moral level, I think we also understand that the, the reason why free markets work is because you have individuals working together in voluntary cooperation. And, and the chief component of capitalism is not competition. It's cooperation. Hmm. Competition is a, is certainly exists as well. And for good reason and for necessary reasons, but it's the coordination that's taking place, the cooperation that's taking place that allows all those millions of transactions to take place. And it's the same thing that's necessary if we're going to actually be successful in, in kind clawing back these things that never belong to the state in the first place. No, uh, well said. And I, I think that what, what's really tough for libertarians in particular is that we're so jaded, you know, we're so, blackpilled on the political establishment that they just won't deliver on what we we demand or what we require and and uh i i couldn't agree more with you that you know i i give a lot of latitude to people like Rand paul and thomas massey uh obviously ron paul uh because i i believe that their track record demonstrates definitively that they are one of us you yeah. know and and this is why I'm such a huge advocate for Dave Smith if he chooses to run as a libertarian presidential candidate in 24 is because I know him personally and I think that he's as true blue as you could find. So um, it's ultimately, you know, running as a libertarian, it's very unlikely that he'll win. But I think that his his impact can be uh, potentially similar to that of a Ron Paul revolution simply because of the advent of, you know, mass distribution podcasting networks and things like that, which he's obviously in a good position to be able to take advantage of. Um, do you think that the, at this point, you know, liberty is marketable to the masses in this country? Because I I think that it's a minority position. And I think that many, many libertarians are leaning towards, you know, kind of an acquiescence that, Hey, New York and California are lost. They're not to be, they're not to be recovered. And perhaps we should be lost from them, you know, and, uh, a peaceful separation type mentality. Do you think that it were at the point of desperation where that should be something that we're seriously discussing, or is that a non-starter? I think it goes back to understand your upper. So the first step is understand your operational environment. The second one is understand your own capabilities and resources. Mm. And, and so, yeah, are, are you going to be able to make major in California? And um, I, I think more so California has an, embarked on a route that is generally only, you know, has embarked on a route where I think they're going to have to feel a whole lot of pain before they, they come through it. Yeah. Um, you know, they, I, just it, so you born and raised there. I spent 38 years there. Uh, oh, I, I was, I was born and raised in California. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm now I'm in Florida to... because I had yeah. to try and get free. But uh, yeah, California is going to suffer tremendously in the near future. Yeah, and 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 the the reason why it's able to suffer so long <laughs> is is because of its its economic prowess and because of all the natural economic and geographical you know because it's maybe the greatest benefits. state in in the entire world. It's such a beautiful place. Oh, it's it's amazing weather wise, resources wise. It's it's absolutely incredible. Um. But yeah, they, they've they've adopted policies that are, are not going to be able to um, are not going to be able to sustain themselves long term. And so the question is, is when you look at something like that, it's like, OK, um, you know, can can you really stop that process at this point? And, and I don't know that you can, but I know this much. If I'm going to donate time and resources and I, I apologize to all my family and friends in California that are mad at me for saying this. But I'm sorry, it's not going to be to try to win the governorship of California. No, it's not no. going to be to try to win the 12th seat, you know, in, the, in that, you know, the state Senate where right. now I can only lose by 20 votes instead of 21 <laughs> votes, right? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus my attention in areas where I can have a, a significant impact. And, and it's, okay, going back to military, right? Asymmetric operations. Mm -hmm. Asymmetric operations is I understand you're bigger than me. I understand that you're stronger than me. I understand you have more resources than me. How do I turn all of those advantages? How do I find different ways to turn them into problems for you? Mm -hmm. And then how do I leverage the whatever advantages that I might have as the as the weaker party here? How do I how do I leverage that to get the, the most bang for my buck? How do I hit above my weight? Well, if, if you have a bunch of you know liberty-minded people operating in a state that is already you know predominantly um, we'll say conservative. You can have a much bigger impact. You look at you look at things that were happening up in New Hampshire, right? That that was a demonstration of that. You look at other things that you see taking place in places like Idaho now. Mm -hmm. uh, you you see that where you can have a much bigger impact when your 16 seats in a in a supermajority within a particular state, but now all of a sudden, like they don't get all 16 of you, they right. have a real problem passing their budget, and that's because you, you can, control the margin vote. You control the margin vote. And, and so that's where we got to be strategic and smart about the way we think about these things and where we use our resources. Um, the, other thing I, the other thing I would say, going back to your point before, is I think that when it comes to, you know, what do we do at this stage? Obviously, interacting in the political process, I believe, is necessary. It's not sufficient. Right. One of the things that's unique about the United States is that we're one of the only truly federalized systems in the world. I mean, you, you could make an argument with certain things in Germany, certain things in Switzerland, but really in the United States, the amount of autonomy that states have from the federal government, the, the, the power and ability it gives them to push back is significant. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's replicated anywhere else in the world. And so I do think we're going to find ourselves approaching um, a, a position in, in the very near future where you're going to see more states um, and more governors and more state legislat uh, legislatures saying, we're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're going to see that process of interposition where it's not just going to be not only are we not going to do that, we're not going to let you do that within the state boundaries. And, and that's going to be very interesting to watch because it's going to put the federal government in a position where they're really going to have to ask themselves, how bad do you want to enforce this? And I remember mm -hmm. when I was carrying industrial hemp legislation in Virginia and I had people saying, well, you know, industrial hemp is uh, that's schedule one at the federal level. And I said, hey, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Colorado, you can smoke pot. In California, <laughs> you can smoke pot. In Washington, D.C., for those of you keeping score at home, that's where the federal government lives. Like, they can smoke pot. So, and, and to my knowledge, to my knowledge, 
the Pacific fleet is not shelling San Francisco. The 82nd airborne is not jumping into Denver. If they can smoke it, I'm pretty sure we can wear it with minimal federal interference. Right? I would hope. But yeah. So like push back, push yeah. back on some of these things, make the feds prove that they actually want to do it because the bottom, the, the dirty little secret is they don't have a lot of police power. They, they mm -hmm. need the local and state law enforcement to help them execute these things. If you push back, a lot of times the feds realize this ain't the juice ain't worth the squeeze, as we like to say. Yeah. So that, well, that's one thing. The other thing, too, is I think we need to get more people engaging. I, I gave a I gave a speech on this to a bunch of constituents who got a little wide eyed. I said, you know, when most of you think of the black market, what you think is heroin and AK-47s, right? Like, you know, fission material. The, the largest items on the black markets are things like um, baby formula, cigarettes, right? It, it's things that, that none of us would have any sort of real moral quandary about purchasing in our local store. But imagine a world where now the government has regulated it so badly um, or is attempting to control things in order to control people. Would, would, you, would you have any problem of buying black market baby formula if your baby needed it? Like, no. no. I said, okay, we're, we're, what we've seen over the last two years is that people are willing to engage in black market medical transactions. Why? Because if, if I don't want to abide by your COVID crap, or if, if, if granddad really needs the cancer screening and the hospital is not going to let him unless he meets this list of criteria that have been approved by you know, the CDC today, are, is, does grandpa die or are you going to find alternatives? Right. And, and we see the same thing with food. Okay, are you just, you just not going to have food on the shelf? Or are you going to buy something from your neighbor, even though the government told you you're not permitted to? So it, it's that kind of, you know, that's all peaceful. None, sure. of that's, none of that's violence. That's all engaging in peaceful protest against you know, regulatory burdens and government intervention into transactions that they shouldn't be involved in. Sure. And so I do think people need to be at least prepared to understand where do I go and who do I work with? Who's in my network, right? That, that, I, that we can engage in peaceful transactions yep. for, for that moment when the government comes in and decides, you know what, we've decided to shut down your bank account today because you haven't taken your 17th booster. Right. That's coming. <laughs> I mean, and this is, this is the whole logic behind agorism is that you kind of have to function in a, a black or gray market. Uh, when the state becomes overtly tyrannical. And I think that we're there. Um, speaking of overt tyranny, I think that the the COVID response over the past three years has been that to me, uh, as you can tell by the name of the show, Liberty Lockdown. I was inspired to begin on this path simply because I felt compelled to speak out because it's so incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And I didn't feel as if um, there was enough outrage, even amongst the libertarians, which was very disturbing. But I want to show you uh, a clip that uh, Lydia sent me over about a half an hour ago. I guess it was an hour ago now since we've been talking, but um, this is one of the people who opposed the lockdowns. Oh, yeah, his, Matt, Matt Strickland. Yeah, having his... Do you know what state this is in? This is Virginia. Oh, this it is. is oh, yeah, oh this is... God. this. I've been to this restaurant. Oh, wow. Let's yeah. just watch a minute of it. That goes for all of you, man. There's no excuse. There's zero excuse. Just doing my job. That's not an excuse anymore, man. That's not an excuse. You guys just doing your job is facilitating what's going on in this country right now. You're shutting down a man's livelihood for not following COVID mandates that didn't do anything, anything to prevent COVID. And it was actually detrimental to the community and not just the community, to our kids, man. It set our kids back so many years, these mandates. It set small businesses back so many years. It destroyed small businesses, man. It destroyed them. It destroyed families. It destroyed our community and it destroyed our country. And nobody in here gives a damn about that. They're just doing their job, just doing their job. And they're gonna continue to do their job. All to preserve themselves. 
Nothing is more important than themselves, man. Their country is not as important as themselves. I guess your family's not either, sir. Because if you got children, you're setting them up for failure by not standing up right now, today. You're setting your kids up for failure. You're setting your family up for failure. And you're destroying your country. I hope you feel good about that. I hope you can sleep well at night. You won't be able to once you find out what you're actually doing to your country. You won't be able to sleep well at night. Trust me. It may not hit you today, but it'll hit you. It'll hit you eventually. And I hope you can live with yourself. I thought that was very, very powerful. Um, I've given countless rants uh, along those lines on my show over the past you know, three years. And uh, I just thought it was very profound coming from an entrepreneur who had you know, stood up for property rights, bodily autonomy, um, and to have the state come down on him you know, I guess that's current. I, I, I assume that. Yeah, no, nice. that happened today. Like I, I was oh on, I was God. on the phone. I was on the phone for, I don't know, probably two hours today, calling different people, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Who's do why, why is this going forward? Um, because we, we all know, like we all know the case of what Matt was going through. So Matt, re Matt, Matt basically reopened um, when, and this is like, we're not talking about like March, 2020. We're talking like way after that, where, where it, it was starting to become evident, like what the primary vectors were and, and who was, you know, who sure. was at the most risk and like that. So Matt said, all right, look, I, I can't continue. I, I mean, I got to I got to keep my business open. He goes, I'm not forcing anybody to come to my restaurant, but we're open. And I mean, look, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm supportive of that. Yeah, me too. And, and I was supportive of it then. And I'm supportive of it now. And, and the whole question that's coming up, and, and this is where the this is where you get into this. We'll just say it's it's frustrating. All right, that that's the nicest way I can put it. Yeah. Because technically, what the governor did was not unconstitutional. He had those powers. Man. So technically, what Matt did was breaking the law. And so you, I, I I have a lot of colleagues, and I understand this. They're like, well, look, we'll we'll try to do whatever we can, but. Technically invited the law. Now here's here's my problem with that statement. We recently we recently uh, legalized marijuana in Virginia, and different people had different feelings on that. My attitude has always been marijuana is not for me, but I don't think we should be locking you up if you want to smoke marijuana, right? That really is. Yeah. And um, and then it was the process of okay, well now we're going to go back and we're going to look at people at certain charges, and and we're going to okay, yeah, that makes sense to me because that's that's no longer the law in Virginia. We're now recognizing that. You know, it's like, look, you don't necessarily get restitution because it was the law at the time, whatever. Here's the problem. Here's what I don't understand. I, I think we have an opportunity here to acknowledge like, OK, we get it. But can't we look back now and recognize that, A, the governor never should have had this power in the first place because I've carried legislation and numerous other of my colleagues have carried legislation to strip the governor of the sort of powers that he relied upon during COVID in order to impose. And it's not the current governor. It's the, the previous one. Mm hmm. Um, can't we acknowledge that the governor never should have had that power in the first place? Can't we acknowledge that a lot of those lockdowns, not only did they not help, they were, they were harmful, you know, on, on the net, they were harmful. And can't we acknowledge that we have some people that they made some difficult decisions, but ultimately they didn't hurt anybody. They didn't require anybody to do something. They didn't go over and put a gun to someone and say, give me your money so I can keep my business open. They didn't do any of that. They didn't, they didn't drag people into the, they didn't do any of those things. So if, if we're willing to, if we're willing to look at other areas, and this is something that I asked my Democrat colleagues, you know, if you're willing to, to not only say that somebody that was put in jail for selling marijuana, not only do we let them out, not only do we expunge the record, but now we give them preferential status with respect to setting up a marijuana dispensary. 
Oh, fascinating. Are, are we not allowed to go back and say, you know what? Uh, I'm sorry, but you know, yeah, the guy technically broke the law. However, we can acknowledge the law went too far. He didn't hurt anybody. This, this was a form of civil disobedience. Yeah. Right. And, and if you're not willing to say that, well, then you, you also have to take into consideration that civil disobedience has a, a, a proud history in the United States. Like Rosa Parks broke the law. Right. Nobody, nobody disputes this. She broke the law. The question is, is should that law have existed? Of course. I would, I would say the answer is absolutely not. I would, so, I would hope people would agree. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would hope so. But so can, can we look at this now and say, okay, we, we get it, but we're, we're going we're gonna to review all of these different violations that took place during COVID, not just for this situation, but for, for businesses all over the place, for small businesses all over the place. We're going to look at this. We're going to reevaluate it. And we're going to say, you know what? This was not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're going to pull some of this back. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a reasonable approach. I, well, it, of course it is. And, and what's so disturbing about it is that the man who's talking, uh, you know, about his business and about what he had done and what they were doing. I didn't, you know, I don't think he was wrong about a word of it. You know, mm -hmm. it was basically the case you just made. He's like, look, I was right. You guys were wrong. You overstepped your power. I did the right thing, which is standing up for my rights and my liberty. And yeah. I did it in a peaceful fashion. I didn't hurt anybody. Um, I think that you know, it's it's fascinating because so many people that were proponents for lockdowns are asking for amnesty over the past two weeks. And I'm like, yeah. how about how about amnesty for the people that you wronged egregiously? Yeah. How about how about amnesty for the people that that lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods because yeah. of what you mandated they put in their body and they they refused? Yeah. It's just it's incredible. Yeah. No, so I look, I I, I don't know what it's I don't know what's gonna happen with this. My my hope is is that we're we're gonna take a far more reasonable approach to this than we have on other things and just say, look. If, if we can acknowledge a couple of things, if we can acknowledge that um, the governor shouldn't have had those powers in the first place, regardless of whether or not he did or not, if we can acknowledge that a lot of mistakes were made, and, and if we can acknowledge that while he may have broken the law, he didn't hurt anybody in the process, mm -hmm. I, I think we should make allowances for that. Yeah. And, and I think we can do that, but we're still maintaining the idea that, yeah, you can't just arbitrarily break the law whenever you feel like it. But again, I don't understand why the same politicians that will make those allowances for people that actually have hurt other people, that they're, they're letting out on parole, right? Like people that actually hurt another innocent human being, or they'll allow it for, you know, they'll bail out people that made huge financial, like big financial fraudulent decisions that ended up destroying the lives of thousands of people, right? They'll make allowances for that. But we can't make an allowance for this. We're going to shut the yeah. business down because he because he served food and alcohol when when Governor Northam when when the same governor said he couldn't do it, but you could still go to the ABC store because that was state run and they wanted the revenue. Right. Right. Come on. I mean, it's just it's the the dual treatment that is going to radicalize people, and I think that yeah. if they want people to not be radicalized, you have to start to give people real justice, you know, even-handed yeah. justice, and it's. Uh, it's tragic because, I, you know, I think that the people that were locked up for, um, you know, just mutually agreed upon trade when it comes to marijuana and them being freed was uh, that was just that's mm -hmm. what should have occurred. And I think that it's so self-evident at this point that the people that opposed the COVID mandates and the hysteria um, were not just right, but the morally uh, superior, you know, mm -hmm. like these are these are really courageous people. And it, it, if we don't honor that, well, then I don't see much hope for liberty moving forward. I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, man. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and it, you may not even want to go here, but 
I've, I've talked to a few vets on my show and I've never asked them just point blank. What's it like to be in combat? And I, I don't know if this is something that you're open to speaking about, but, yeah. um, you know, as I think every young man, whether they end up going that route or not, always has like, there's some, there's some draw to it. There's some calling to it. I'm just curious, yeah. um, you know, what, what was your experience like? So, you know, one thing I'm always real careful about with this and I, and I, I tell people this all the time. Um, I, I did two tours. I did a lot of combat operations, <clears throat> Uh, but I, I didn't consider my tour to be that difficult or, or that okay. scary or that dangerous. Um, we, we probably rolled up about, I think it was 32 high value targets um, while we were over there on different tours. Um, there was really only one or two times where I thought, yeah, I might, <laughs> I might be about ready to punch out yeah. at this point. Whereas, whereas I had, you know, other people would have had experiences over there where they had even less other people had experiences over there where it was just like street fighting day to day, losing buddies all over the place. So I think it's important to, to understand that um, you, you could have gone to Iraq the exact same year for the exact same time period, been in different places and had two totally different experiences. Of course. Yeah. And, um, but I, I'll, I'll say this there. Um, they're always, there always feels like there's unfinished business. Um, because uh, you're you're right. There, there was something. My my father was a homicide detective. My my mother uh, was a nurse. Both of them worked in high stress environments where you had to think quickly. Um, sometimes you're dealing with dangerous situations. Obviously, dealing with life and death situations. And um, I, I think as as I would hope, as men, we still want to be tested. Now that doesn't mean you go out looking for something. But the bottom line is that there's a lot of violence in the world, and you're either prepared for it or you're not. Of course. And um, I, I think the most defining moment I ever had in Iraq came in um, November of 2000, gosh, I guess it was 2008. And um, it, it, was, it was one of those times where there, there were so many times where you're, you're kicking indoors and you're moving so quick and you're, you're grabbing things that you're, you're just kind of moving and you're going based off of the training you had. This, this one I had time to think about. Mm. I had the time to think about before I, I was going to do it. And it was really about jumping. That probably this, makes it harder, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Cause I was, I was jumping into this hole and it was right on the, the side of the Tigris river. So you got to figure it's, it's, you know, largely desert in Iraq, but you get next to the Tigris and it gets, you know, a lot more lush and you, you, you couldn't see very far ahead of you and the whole deal. But I knew that there was this little hidey hole. I knew I had to jump down and we're, and we're sitting there and looking at it and your mind starts racing through this decision-making process of, okay, what's the best way to do this? What's the most tactically sound way to do it? You know, do I throw a fragmentation grenade down there? What if there's actually a kid just hiding down there instead of the guy that was shooting at us, you know, and, and, and dropped two of my Iraqis, uh, you know, 30 minutes earlier, like what, and, and you're going through all of this. And, and at some point, like I had this moment of clarity where it was, I'll never forget this. My dad, <laughs> sorry, my dad told me this story. Um, as a homicide detective, he was on an officer-involved shooting team. He got moved over there, and he was investigating. And there was an officer that had left cover um, and got hit multiple times pulling one of his um, buddies out. Oh, man. And, um, and my dad's telling me the story as I'm a kid. And the guy's captain, the guy's superior officer, tried to, tried to throw him under the bus saying that, well, he didn't, he didn't use this tactically sound. Or his tactics weren't sound. He screwed up here and the whole deal. And the review board got done looking at what this guy had done in this moment and came back and told the captain, not only do we not find that he has done anything outside of the tactics, tactics techniques, and procedures authorized by the LAPD, but we will be very curious as to what award for valor you plan to put him in for. I would hope. 
And then they get into the elevator and they're going down and my dad's sitting there and there's this him and this other detective they work with. And, and this captain is looking at one of the guys. He goes, yeah, you, you don't think he was wrong in the way he did it. And he looks at somebody goes, no, captain, I think that I think that he he acted heroically. And I think that's that's what that's what they call police officers to go and do. And this other guy said, yeah, unless you want him to start calling the effing fire department. <laughs> but, but for some reason in that moment in Iraq is I I've got my court on established and I, and we're trying to find where this guy is hiding. And I got to jump down into this little hole. That story came back to me and it was like, I will never be able to explain to my son. Um, <laughs> I will never be able to explain to my son if I didn't do what was my responsibility to do in this moment and somebody else gets hurt mm. because I didn't do it. Um, now look, very anticlimactic, right? We got in there, got, no. got the, got the guy, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get shot at it, you know? Um, but it, it was just that moment of kind of thinking about that. And, and the, the only thing I can emphasize is that combat does bring you, bring you face to face with, um, a lot of very, very difficult decisions that you're probably not going to have to face in most areas of your life. Mm -hmm. And, and the, one of the benefits that I think I received out of it was this idea that you truly figure out, you truly figure out what it is that you're not only willing to fight for, but the, what you're willing to sacrifice for yeah. and what you're, what you're potentially willing to give up everything for. And, and a lot of people will look at this from the geopolitical standpoint and say, oh, that's stupid. Why were we even there in the first place? Okay, fine, whatever. But in that moment, in that moment, somebody was dangerous down there that had hurt two of my guys. And I was responsible for something. And I was either going to do it or I wasn't going to do it. And I was going to have to live with that one way or another. Right. And thank God, thank God I had been surrounded with enough people in my life that had taught me that genuinely understanding the value of individual liberty also means assuming personal responsibility. One of the biggest problems that I have with some people that claim to be on the liberty movement is that they're not for liberty, they're for licentiousness, mm -hmm. right? I want to be free to live an honorable life. And so if there, if there was anything I, I, I took out of that combat experience along with working with some of the greatest people that I've ever served with friends that I will have for life. Um, it was understanding that when you have said you were going to do something, you do it with honor and you do it regardless of what the potential consequences might be to yourself. And right. if you're not prepared to do that for anything in your life, you will never, you will never truly understand what it means to be free. Oh my God. That was so powerful. That was beautiful, man. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the, uh, yeah, we need courage and, uh, and morality too. Whew. Nick, thank you so much for opening up, man. Uh, oh, I really, you. I really, uh, appreciated this conversation. And I think it was, uh, not just insightful, but touching. And, uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have someone like you in this fight. So thank you. Yeah, you as well, brother. And thank you very much for having me on. I don't even know if this is a, an appropriate thing to ask at this point, but go ahead and tell people where they can follow you, Nick. I feel, <laughs> you know, take it, take it all business-like. <laughs> well, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, our, our, our crew here, uh, Nick Hamilton, Christian Hines, uh, you know, uh, Cody Bland, others, we, 
We have a, a podcast we do called Making the Argument, and uh, a big part of what we try to do on that has to do with a lot of what we discussed here. It's the idea that we don't want to just be right in the way we think about it. We want to talk about it in ways that's relevant to the culture that we're trying to engage in. So understand that operational environment and then you know, operate and move within that environment the best way you can. And that's what Making the Argument is all about, is how do we equip people to take that liberty message to a diverse audience? Um, we also have a program we do called The Why Minutes, where we kind of take these three three-minute episodes where we try to explain like a good liberty principle and we try to use something interesting to do that. And then obviously, you know, we're, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Um, but I'll, I'll link all that down below so people can find it easy, but uh, appreciate it. Uh, thank you again, Nick. That was, that was just a tremendous conversation. I, I really appreciate your time. Everybody go out and support Nick. And if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Com. Make sure you hit like, comment, subscribe. You know the things. Love you guys. We're out. I told you guys that was a powerful one. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That was very touching. It's only the second time I've teared up during an interview. I think the other one was with uh, with Ross Albrecht's mom. It was the only other time that I really got shooken up. So um, that was a powerful one. And I think that it was a really beautiful way of tying in kind of the fight that we're in, the fight for liberty. And what it's going to take to try and maintain it or attain it in this situation, seeing as it's unfortunately largely lost. As always, if you want to support my show, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. I will be doing an AMA this week. Also, tomorrow I will be having on Craig Pasta, Chardula, Dave Smith, as well as Jimmy Dore, the four of us. It's going to be an incredible episode, live streamed on both platforms, mine as well as Combo Couch. Do not miss it. Love you guys. We're out. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?